0: The Bible is full of promises, and we love the promises of God. But the reality is that the Bible contains not only promises to bless, but also promises to curse. As we open our Bibles to Second Kings today, we witness God follow through on His promise to eject His people from His promised land. And we need to understand what is happening here, because we need to know what to expect. Can we expect to make our home forever in the eternal land God has promised to share with us? Or are we vulnerable to being exiled from Him forever? Sometimes my husband calls me names like Honey or Sweetheart. And then there are these other times, he calls me scofflaw, as in one who scoffs at the law. And he calls me this when I act like the rules just simply don't apply to me. But don't you think some rules are actually made to be broken? Like take, for example, that no outside food or drink rule at the movie theater. I mean, I don't like it. And I have been known to smuggle in my own can of Diet Coke into the theater and wait for a loud explosion during the previews to cover the sound of opening the can. And before you judge me, you, with the big purse, you've done it too, haven't you? Well, one time David and I were sitting in the movie theater and we saw some friends of ours come down the opposite aisle at the theater and sit down. And we watched as she brought out her big bag of microwave popcorn. And it was then that I realized they weren't just friends. They were fellow scofflaws. So I snuck up behind them and I put on my most official sounding voice. And I said, "Uh, excuse me, but I'm going to have to ask you to leave. And they were shocked and then relieved to look up and find it was me nailing them and not the theater manager. But the truth is I don't think I've ever witnessed this no outside food or drinks rule actually being enforced. I mean have you? In fact I don't think I've ever seen what the consequences would be if you break the rule stated clearly. Here's what will happen if we find you sipping on a soda or going for some gummy bears that you didn't purchase from us. It's very different from the student handbook that spells out clearly the various infractions that will get you expelled from school or the youth directors warning about what pranks will get you sent home from camp. And it's also very different from the very clear warnings of consequences set before the Israelites as they entered into the land of Canaan. God began clearly warning the Israelites. About what would cause them to be evicted from the Promised Land 40 years before they even entered it he began in Leviticus where we read in Leviticus 18 you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I have punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. The imagery here is unpleasant, but appropriately so. If you've ever had food poisoning, then you know what your body does to eject the offending poison from your system. This is God's holy land. And the Canaanite people living there have poisoned it with their abominations. And it has made God sick to his stomach and he is about to vomit them out of his land. And as he does so, it should serve as a warning to the Israelites that they can't assume that they can do what the Canaanites did and expect to live forever in his land. They are not an exception to God's rules. They cannot enjoy the blessing of God apart from obedience to God. If they're disobedient, God will judge them just as severely as he judged the nations who contaminated his land before them. Forty years later, right before the next generation crossed the Jordan to take possession of the land, Moses warned them again. In Deuteronomy 4, 25 through 27, he says this, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly, by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it but will be utterly destroyed and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left Few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. The Israelites entered into the land, but they didn't purge the land of the Canaanites as God had told them to. Their compromise and God's patience continued during the period of the judges. And then the Lord appeared to King Solomon, promising him that if he walked before the Lord, keeping his commands, there would never come a day when one of his descendants would not be on the throne of Israel. But also warning what would happen if he led the people in disobeying and disregarding God's commands. Back in 1 Kings 9, 6 and 9, we read this warning God gave to Solomon. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go to serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples, and this house will become a heap of ruins." Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss and they will say, why has the Lord done this to the land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. On one hand, they heard a promise that David's kingdom would be made sure forever. And perhaps that lulled them into a false sense of security because they were also told clearly that if they persisted in disobedience to God, they and their king would be swept away into exile. And these warnings were not idle threats. You know, more than once in my parenting journey, I have threatened my son, Matt, with punishments that I was sorry I had come up with, (laughs) punishments that were more miserable for me than for him. And if you promise not to report me to the parenting hall of shame, I will admit to you that more than once, I have committed the ultimate parenting faux pas of threatening a punishment that I didn't follow through on. However, God is a better parent than I am. His rules are always for our good, not for his convenience. And we can be sure that he does not make idle threats. He will always follow through on his promises, including his promises to punish. Of course, usually when we talk about God keeping his promises, we're thinking about his promises to bless. But we should know that God also keeps his promises to curse. All of the punishment he promises, he carries out in full measure. He will not go soft in the end. He will not compromise his justice. And it's rather sobering to think about, isn't it? It should be. If you are not sobered by the thought of God measuring out deserved punishments?" Perhaps you don't really take God all that seriously. The sad story of the decline and eventual exile of the people of God begins with the words in 1 Kings eleven fourteen. The Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary, and immediately we realize that this attack is not simply the natural result of forces of history, but something God is doing. Solomon received a kingdom that was united and at peace, but he handed his son a kingdom that was divided and at war. When his son, Rehoboam, took over, he immediately faced rumbling discontent among the people in the North who didn't want him as their king or to be part of his kingdom. So the northern tribes picked their own king, Jeroboam, who had been one of Solomon's generals, but was not a descendant of David. And they separated themselves from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. So grasp the tragedy here. God had promised to bless people from every nation through a king from the line of David. So when the northern tribes crowned their own king, who was not a son of David. They were separating themselves from the promise and blessing of God. The 12 tribes of Israel had been unified under a great and wise king in the days of Solomon and had enjoyed wealth and peace on every side. They had been the envy of the whole world. And now they're at war with each other. And I have to admit that this part of Israel's history has always been kind of fuzzy for me. While a childhood filled with learning Bible stories was an incredible blessing and privilege somehow, I missed grasping the bigger story that all of these stories fit into. For most of my life, I would have been hard-pressed to summarize the history of Israel from their entrance into the Promised Land and put all the kings and prophets and exiles and returns in their proper place. And when we read through the history found in First and 2 Kings, honestly, it can be difficult to sort out the chronology of these kings, partly because the narrative goes back and forth between the kings of Israel in the north and kings of Judah in the south. And what makes it even more confusing? Is that some of the kings have very similar names, and some kings are referred to by more than one name. So if you have trouble when you read it, putting it all together, I'm with you. But here are the basics we need to understand. Ten of the twelve tribes became the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and their capital was in Samaria. And the kings who ruled there for about 200 years were not descendants of David. It's important when we read this section of the Bible that we keep in mind that when we read about Israel at this point, it's not referring to the whole nation, just these 10 northern tribes that were called Israel. And there were two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that became the southern kingdom called Judah and its capital was in Jerusalem. Benjamin was just a very small tribe and essentially was folded into Judah. For about 400 years, a descendant of David sat on the throne over Judah. The first king over the northern ten tribes, Jeroboam, he really didn't know or care much about the Lord, but he was savvy enough to recognize the cohesive power of religion as well as the draw of Jerusalem's temple, which was in the heart of the southern kingdom. Jeroboam realized that if his people continued to travel down into Judah to worship God at the temple in Jerusalem, they might begin to want the old unity back with the tribes there, and worse yet, they might want their old Davidic king back. So Jeroboam decided to create his own centers of worship for the northern tribes. And rather than building an alternate temple to the one in Jerusalem, he made two golden calves and he put one in the southern part of the northern kingdom and one in the north. And he introduced them to the people saying, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You see, this way, They won't have to make that long trip to Jerusalem anymore to worship. Have you ever noticed that often when a company is taking away some service, or they're gonna start charging you more for it, they send you a letter or an email, and it usually begins, for your convenience. (laughs) And you think, this really is not convenient. Well, that's what Jeroboam is doing here. He is couching his introduction Of false worship as a convenience. What they don't realize is how much this convenience is going to cost. It's going to cost them everything they hold dear, all the good gifts God has poured out on them in the land of promise. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So Jeroboam used the same vocabulary, set up and yearly calendar for his made-up religion as that of true worship of Yahweh, altars, temples, priests, sacrifices and feasts. He used all the buzzwords. That would make it sound just like the worship of Yahweh when actually it was a complete rejection of Yahweh. We get a sense of what life was like in the northern kingdom during these 200 years from the book of Amos who was a prophet there during this era. He described it as a place where the rich lived in opulence with total disregard for the poor and where the streets were filled with violence So in the land where God's people were supposed to be teaching their children the commandments of God and passing along the gracious promises of God, parents were allowing their children to be burned in the fire to false gods. You know, a tree can be destroyed in two different ways. Either there can be internal rot that works slowly but surely, or there can be a storm that causes it to snap and blow down. But when there's both internal rot and the external force of a storm, then a fall is certain. And that describes the northern kingdom. It was corrupt and rotten inside. And then the powerful storm of the armies of Assyria came up against it. And it was only a matter of time until it fell. The Israelites had been warned of what would happen if they lived this way in the land. And as I said, God never makes idle threats. So in 2 Kings 17, verses 5 through 8, we read this. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria. And for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Haber, the river of Gozan, and the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. That is the story of the northern kingdom. 200 years of turning away from Yahweh and going after other gods. And then God did what he said he would do. They were vomited out of the land and into exile in Assyria, scattered throughout Assyria's conquered lands. Assyria's method of making sure conquered peoples didn't rise up against them was to move populations from other conquered countries into newly conquered land so that they would intermarry and lose any sense of national identity. So we read in 2 Kings 17, verse 24, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kepha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children as their fathers did, so they do to this day. When these imported foreigners were brought into Israel, they brought their own gods with them and intermarried with the few Israelites who were left behind on the land. Their descendants were the mixed-race people so hated by Israelites in Jesus' day, the Samaritans. All the rest of the ten northern tribes were assimilated into the lands and the people where they were scattered. Now, the story of the south was the same but different. Clearly, things did not get off to a good start in the southern kingdom. Look in 1 Kings chapter 14, beginning in verse 21. Now, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Nama, the Ammonite. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed. More than all that their fathers had done, for they also built for themselves high places and pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Well, first and second Kings says that every one of the nineteen northern kings did evil in the eyes of the Lord, or did not turn away from any of the sins of the previous king. There were a number of kings who reigned in the south, about whom we read that they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. First and second kings commends Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Amaziah, Uzziah, and Jotham. Yet none of them eliminated The places of worship to other gods that had been erected in the days of Solomon. After the northern tribes were exiled, things took a decided turn for the worse when Manasseh came to power in the south. In an ultimate act of defiance toward God, Manasseh built altars to pagan gods, not just in the hills surrounding the city of Jerusalem, but inside the temple of the Lord. This would be like a wife bringing her lover into her house and sleeping with him right in front of her husband. We see, however, the grace of God at work preserving the Davidic line of kings when Manasseh's grandson, Josiah, came along. He had grown up in this horrible household of pagan worship, and yet he began to seek the Lord in the Lord's temple, and there he discovered a manuscript of God's law, probably the book of Deuteronomy, and it had been lost. Now, imagine this. The temple was there, but evidently there had been no reading or teaching of the scriptures for decades. So Josiah then led a national campaign of reformation, making his way around the entire country, supervising the destruction of all the altars to idols in the land. But while Josiah had the power to tear down altars, he didn't have the power to change hearts. And soon after his death, the altars to idols were rebuilt and the false worship resumed. And it was during this time that the prophet Jeremiah tried to warn the people of the disaster that was approaching. We read this in Jeremiah 9, 13 through 16. And the Lord says, because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts, and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them? Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. Jeremiah's message of doom began to be fulfilled in 597 BC when Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon captured Jerusalem and desecrated the temple and deported most of her leaders and artisans. Look back into Second Kings chapter 24, At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all of the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, And all the craftsmen and the smiths, none remained except the poorest people of the land. Judah was carried off into exile. And it didn't have to be this way. They had been warned. They were living under the old covenant given through Moses at Sinai, an arrangement that God made uniquely with ancient Israel. The old covenant was characterized by conditional promises and severe warnings. God said, if you obey me, then I will bless you. And if you disobey me, then I will curse you. The problem wasn't with the covenant, but with the people. Because the people just didn't have the want to to keep up their end of this if-then arrangement. But God did not give up on his people. He made a promise of a new covenant to come that would be far superior to the performance-based old covenant. Instead of an if-then relationship, God promised an I-will relationship. He promised this through his prophet Jeremiah He said, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. God also reaffirmed his earlier promise of a king who would sit on David's throne forever. This king would be a righteous, not idolatrous king. And under his rule, there would be security instead of unrest. Look in Jeremiah 23 verses 5 and 6. our righteousness. At the very end of the book, the writer of 2 Kings wants us to see the way God was at work, even during the exile, to bring about this promise of a righteous branch from David. Look back into 2 Kings chapter 25, beginning in verse 27. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, On the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. The royal house of David may have been dethroned, imprisoned, exiled, but it wasn't obliterated. God always keeps his promises. And because he is a sovereign king, he is powerful enough to preserve for himself the line of King David so that one day David's greater son would be born to sit on David's throne just as he had promised. Matthew begins his gospel by giving us the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, tracing his ancestry from Abraham through King David and David's descendants. We pick it up in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12, where we read, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, And Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Matthew makes it clear in his gospel that Jesus was the promised Son of David. He's also intent in his gospel to demonstrate that Jesus was the true Israel who obeyed God perfectly in a way Israel never could. Just as Israel came out of Egypt, Matthew points out that Jesus came out of Egypt as a child. Just as Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea, we read about Jesus passing through the waters of baptism. Just as Israel was tempted in the wilderness for 40 years, we witnessed Jesus being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus went up on the mountain to teach God's law and came down from the mountain to feed the people with bread like God fed Israel with the manna in the wilderness. But his embracing of Israel's story did not end there. Just as Israel was exiled from the place of God's presence and blessing because of her disobedience, so Jesus was exiled from God's presence and blessing, but not because of his disobedience. He was exiled because of our disobedience. At the cross, Jesus experienced exile in its most intense form, as he was separated from God's blessing. We hear the agony of this exile in Jesus' words from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus experienced the exile from God that you and I deserve to experience forever. He was cut off from God so that we can be welcomed in. Exile, however, was not the end of the story of Israel. And neither was it the end of the story of Jesus. For Israel, after exile into Babylon, came return to the promised land. And for Jesus, after exile into death, came resurrection to life. Jesus endured the exile of death in order to overcome it. And because he has overcome it, all who are joined to him need never fear being eternally exiled from God. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. God does not make idle threats. Don't mistake your experience of His mercy as God going soft on sin. All of the punishment He has promised, all of the punishment rightly deserved, He carries out in full measure. And the question is will it fall on you because you are separated from Christ? Or will you be protected? From this punishment because you have hidden yourself in Christ who has absorbed all of the punishment you rightly deserve. The urgency of this question is why Jesus also issued a warning warning what will happen to those who refuse to be united to him. He said if anyone does not abide in me he is thrown away like a branch and withers And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. No one who refuses to be joined to Christ and to thereby receive his perfect record of obedience as her own, can expect to live forever in God's holy land. Instead, she can expect to be exiled, far away from the place of blessing. So how do we know if we are joined to Christ? Well, our lives will bear the fruit of obedience to him that only comes from abiding in him. As partakers of the new covenant, our obedience to God is not the way we secure our place in his kingdom. We rest on Christ's obedience for that. Instead, obedience is the natural outflow or the fruit of being savingly connected to Christ. Jesus said that if we love him, we will obey him. You see, if you have truly come to Christ, his spirit is at work in you revealing areas of disobedience, giving you the desire and the power to forsake sin, and transforming you into a person who wants to obey. This is no self-effort or behavior modification. It's a spirit-empowered transformation. And it's not that you obey perfectly or that you never struggle with sin but that there is an identifiable pattern of glad obedience to the king taking shape in your life. Instead of producing the kind of fruit that is consistent with a person who is living her life at odds with the king, resistant to the king, your life is producing the kind of fruit that gives evidence that you have a new desire to obey and a new power to obey. Your connectedness to Jesus means that the things that make God want to vomit increasingly make you want to vomit. And the things that make God smile are more and more becoming the things that make you smile. Paul wrote in Galatians 5, reiterating the warning Jesus had given, Now the works of the flesh are evident. patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When Jesus came, he repeatedly warned that those who persist in living as if God is not their king will be exiled from his kingdom. Any claim to know God that is not expressed in obedience to God can't be true saving knowledge of God. So what do we do with these repeated warnings? Are we to live in fear that we won't be obedient enough, that we will somehow cross the line that will make us vulnerable to being cast out of God's heavenly land? The warnings of the New Testament serve to sound the alarm and call those who are not united with Christ to be joined to him so that they will not face the dire fate of being exiled from God forever. And they also serve as a means by which we can test the genuineness of our connectedness to Christ. They should cause us to examine ourselves and ask, is my life? marked by obedience to God. Now, the question is not, am I perfect? But rather, is there a desire and determination to be obedient to God that is shaping my life? My friend, don't ignore the warnings found in the Word of God. God doesn't make idle threats. And the way to respond to the warning of God, is to respond to the invitation of Christ, which is, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Christ, you will find pardon for all of your past disobedience. And connected to Christ, you will find power for living a new life of obedience. He will give you the want to, to obey him. So that instead of fearing exile, you will find rest for your soul. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out.